TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. And now... You're listening to TalkLine with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host... Tonight's broadcast of Talkline with Zev Brenner is graciously sponsored by ShopEichlers.com. They have the best selection, best service of books, Judaica, anything you need, and one day delivery to New York, New Jersey. And you may recall that Morty Getz and ShopEichlers.com were the first to stop selling Chaim Walder's book, a very heroic move. They wanted to make a stand, make it very clear, even if it meant losing some business. So if you want to support their work, Please shop Eichlers.com. That's shop Eichlers.com. As I said, same day delivery in New York, New Jersey. Great prices, great selection, great service. Shop Eichlers.com. Welcome back to the program. I'm Zev Brenner, and we're looking at the tragic chapter, uh, the last chapter in the life of Chaim Walder. And uh, with us right now is Rabbi Ron Yitzhak Eisenman. He's born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. He learned in Kolo and Eretz Yisrael in the United States, and he taught as a Rebbe in Yeshiva for two decades, and he's appointed in 1997 the Rav of Congregation of Havas Israel in Passaic, New Jersey, and uh, he also has so many rabbinic functions, including a professor at Lander College for Women. He's published three books, including the latest, A Shul with the View from Art Scroll. You can find them in Mishpacha Magazine, and he's done the short vert. And he has written, I think, a fascinating article regarding this particular case. So, Rabbi Eisman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Okay. So I want to reflect. You wrote, I think, a very moving piece. And by the way, I'm impressed with your writings, and I think you are not afraid to articulate and, and take strong positions because that's what being a rabbi in today's day and age is about, what leadership is all about. And you were very clear regarding the Chaim Walder situation and you said, I could have ignored it. I could have sensationalized it. You can blame other people. But you went through it and you about the impact. So perhaps you can share with our audience the major points of what you wrote and what the reaction has been to your piece. Well, I, the major point I wrote is, is, number one, it seems unfortunately clear that the allegations certainly have a substantial and honestly, as best as we can, credible. Uh, number two, obviously, is this idea, which is somewhat, I think, was ignored, uh, to validate and to identify and to support uh, the victims. As you mentioned correctly, Zev, the older allegations go back 25 years, and the uh, most recent go back six months. So, therefore, uh, I think... Those were, um, and obviously the point of uh, reemphasizing again and again with our children and with ourselves as parents, protecting our children. That's, that, that's the main thing, of course, is protecting our children. Um, and if people don't realize the impact that it has, we'll get to that in just a few moments. But perhaps let's go through the rabbinic calculations because Haaretz newspaper in Israel is writing that the rabbis are backtracking. They don't, they're from what they originally came out, you know, challenging Chaim Walder for his allegations of abuse over the years. So what is going on? Because he did have a large funeral. He committed suicide. 
Um, they're talking about releasing his book so you can read it again. Is there a shift where for the last couple of weeks where we have, whether it's your TED or the other publications of the Haredi media were challenging and took a very strong and courageous stand, are they backtracking now? Obviously, I'm not a spokesman for the Haredi media. I want to make that clear. I can't answer what's that backtracking or not. But I do want to say that as of present, I am not aware of any rabbinic personality of any sort of uh, authority or any sort of position of authority who has denied publicly any of the allegations brought against him. I've seen those who felt that perhaps the issue could have been dealt with differently, perhaps not in a public manner, perhaps that, but I haven't seen anybody, and nor have I seen anything in the Haredi media, not when it first broke, nor now, where anybody has blanketly just said these things are not true. I haven't seen anything on that. So I think what you mentioned as far as the funeral, and the, I think that's a, um, I think that's a separate issue where, uh, especially now that the man is dead, and especially now that there is an Almana, a widow, and there are Yusomim orphans, so that, and they do live in Benebrak, I think obviously that is a little bit of a game changer of how to publicly react. But as far as his actions, I am not aware of anyone who has come out anywhere, in the Haredi or any other world, who has come out to deny the allegations. I don't think they're denying the allegations, but they're, as you said, they may be challenging how it was done. They're saying that he should have appeared before a court of Jewish law, a Besden. They seem to be backtracking as far as how they, how he was portrayed in the, in the media, and they seem to be taking a different stand. That's what it seems, and, uh, and I mentioned Howard's uh, newspaper in Israel did a story about that just the other day. Uh-huh. Look, I, I'm, I'm not aware of every story in Haaretz. You know, I, I want to point out one at the beginning. I, I think, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe the man who broke the story is a man, Rabinowitz, who works for Haaretz. I just want to clarify, if you look up his credentials, he originally worked for Kikar Shabbos. Kikar Shabbat is one of, it, it is one of the primary Haredi websites. He has genuine uh, bona fide Haredi credentials. He obviously took the position of Aretz as any other person would take a position uh, for Parnassa for his support. So he, he himself is a, a Haredi individual, an ultra-Orthodox individual. He mentioned that uh, they wrote an article about why he wrote the article, which I thought was really required reading. He said that after an unfortunate incident, the head of Zaka, Meshi Zahav, serious allegations were brought against him. He said the next person that this brought up was uh, a CW, that he, uh, that CW was the first and foremost calls that came in. He also writes how he went over and over and over, and they even only decided to go with three women of different ages to support the allegations. So uh, I'm not aware of you know, the, the analysis, but again, I, I don't, I, I don't see any backtracking in that the facts haven't changed. I, yes, I know if you're referring to the, um, this eulogy, which was printed in one of the main Haredi media organs, Yatenne Aman, where the epithet, uh, 
blessed are the righteous, uh, uh, the memory of the righteous to a bracha, zeichet tzaddik lebracha. That I think, I don't think at all I'm alone or some sort of a major um, stan who were shocked by the use of that epithet. Uh, honestly, what everyone wants to make of the man, uh, honestly, even before his his tragic suicide, I mean, he was not a, known in any shape form of a Torah scholar. He was not known for any shiurim. He was not a Rosh Hashiva. He was, I mean, even before the allegation, he was sort of a, obviously a fine man before anyone knew, but it was not anybody was consulted on halachic matters or quote-unquote das Torah. So I, I was a little, uh, I, I'm only the only one, frankly, in the, in the entire world that was quite shocked by the epithet of Zetzal applied to his name. But again, I, I really don't think that that was a backtrack in the recognition of the credibility and the truthfulness of the severity of the allegations brought against him. I think it was more of a way of closing an extremely uncomfortable subject within the local community. But there are some that that all of a sudden I'm hearing, and this is grassroots. This is this is not scientific. I haven't done a, a survey or a poll, but there seems to be some more support for him now that he's dead than previously. I, I'm sensing that. Well, you know, honestly, as you said, you know, we haven't done like quote unquote a scientific report, but whether that's true or whether it's not true, I spoke in my shul Friday night to thank God a large crowd. And I opened by saying I, I, I have no interest, nor do I think there's anything uh, useful in bashing or in broad-stroking a community and being critical of a certain community. I'm, as in any other community there are, in, be it from the left wing of the modern Orthodox to the whatever quote-unquote right wing of the ultra-Orthodox world, uh, Obviously, there are different reactions. I think it's it, it's too simplistic to uh, put them into some sort of a small window. So, I, I, honestly, if there are certain voices which are, as you called it, are now um, voicing support, I, I don't honestly, I, I don't think that's the issue here. I don't think the issue is whether the Haredi media is now backtracking. Really, is so at least for us here in America, so relevant. To the severity of the issue and what we can do or what we should do or how we should view this as a wake-up call for protection in our society. If they believe there in B'nai B'rath that they have a way of dealing with it, whether I disagree or I agree, I, I'm going to say that I fail to see the, the relevance or the necessity for me to comment on that. So let me ask you this. Should one read, I think he has close to 80 books, if I'm not mistaken, and they're good books. They were bestsellers over a long period of time. Sh- should one be allowed to read his books considering the situation? I'm curious to get your perspective. My personal opinion is was very strong and emphatic. But the answer is no. One should not only not read his books, I was very emphatic that one should discard the books. Uh, I, I thought this idea, which some people forwarded to me that there were book burnings. I, I found that a little bit despicable. It was too reminiscent, as we all know, of 
past anti-Semitic uh, events uh, in our history. And I think, honestly, was making, to a certain extent, a uh, something comical. We're going to have a public book burning. But I did feel the book, I felt very strong in the book should not be written. I felt very strong in the book should be discarded, totally not donated to libraries, nor given over to other people. I felt that they should be whatever placed in the recycle and whatever one has and, and discarded totally. And the reason is the primary reason, the primary reason is because of the victims. That if you, not just a victim of CW, but even a victim which there are too many for us to even realize of sexual assault, they will see the book and that is a trigger and that is frankly just something that is painful to them. I gave the analogy, imagine a, a murderer, uh, of a relative of somebody ha happened to also write a, a good book, but uh, he was a murderer of a person's relative. When they came over to your house, I think it would be quite, uh, not just impolite, I think it would be quite uh, hurtful and quite insulting and quite malicious to keep the book on the shelf that they would notice that the, you... You read, you condone the book of a person who is, reminds them of something so painful. Any person who is a survivor of sexual abuse, and there are everywhere, everywhere. I doubt you will gather 15 Jews together where somebody in that group is not a survivor of some sort of sexual abuse. They will see that book and they will interpret that or certainly potentially interpret that as a support, a validation, condoning him which and his work. So that is a primary primary reason, just identification with the victims, which we ha I felt the books must be discarded. Um, second of all, I also felt, given the extreme nature of his duplicitous behavior and his almost, I guess we would call it uh, psychotic schizophrenic, dual personality, it's hard for me to imagine that embedded between the lines is not some of his perniciousness, which I imagine would come out, even though I know for years nobody has necessarily pointed it out, but now that it has been revealed, I mean, we even have a halacha in Shulchan Aruch that if a non-believing Jew and apostate wrote a safe Torah, that safe Torah may not be utilized for the read, public reading of the Torah, notwithstanding the fact that it may be written uh, in perfect calligraphy form. So to over here, I, I, I think that the book itself is uh, written by an a person who certainly, whatever you are, be it from the modern Orthodox left to the ultra-Orthodox on the right, certainly does not represent in any way, shape, or form not just Torah ideals, but basic universal human morality. So let me ask you this question, because this is a, a much broader issue. If somebody committed a crime, and we see that in American culture, look at Bill Cosby and others, when the, they were convicted, so they stopped running their movie series, their TV series, etc. So if one commits a crime and is convicted, should we just ignore whatever good they may have contributed in the past? So obviously that's an excellent question. Uh, obviously... Normally, the answer is, of course, no. We this cancel culture, which has become very 
prominent in America nowadays. You do one thing and that's it, everything good you've done. You sent one uh, email, which uh, there was a reference, uh, some sort of awkward racial or uh, sexist reference cancels out a 40-year career. Obviously, I think that's absurd. But I think we also agree that if I came to someone's house and I noticed they had Mein Kampf on the shelf and they told me, well, there are insightful ideas that Hitler, Yamach his memory should be obliterated, that, his, that there are some insightful ideas in Mein Kampf, I think we all agree that that's already crossing the red line of notwithstanding he may have some insightful ideas. Uh, where the line is drawn, I agree with you. That's a very difficult. And by the way, in that, in that reason, Zev, I want to be clear, when they asked me in my shul, I said, this is not, I'm not answering as far as this meat is kosher or this meat is not kosher. It's not a black, white, a yes. It's my strong rabbinic opinion. However, it's not, it's not a halakhically clear issue. I think even morally it's not a halakhically. You mentioned Mr. Cosby before. Growing up, I must admit that I uh, enjoyed his uh, television series that he had. They were you know, funny. They were clean. However, when it came out that the abuse was, was rampant over decades, and you're talking about, I don't recall now, but two or three dozen, if not more, women who were victimized by this man. So I do believe that would cross the red line. On the other hand, I don't know, a person who maybe had one offense 30 years ago and since that time has lived uh, unstained life and, and regretted what they did. Um, I mean, if you remember, I imagine you do, you know, the famous book by, I believe it's by Leon Uris, QB7, I believe, it deals with just that question of a man who was involved uh, in the Holocaust, the doctor, and the good he did after versus the evil he did before. So I, I, I don't know. In, in this situation, but I'm saying because of the trigger effect, I just felt that the book should not be on the bookshelf. And, and, but I also want to add on, I don't, I'm not the ultimate judge. But I don't discard or I don't disregard or I don't ignore that he gave, including myself, he gave, uh, including myself, enjoyment in reading his presentation. I mean, remember, again, I don't want to glorify, but he did create this new genre of where the protagonist was the child, him or herself, which was really groundbreaking in uh, Haredi literature, where the classic literature was always presented as a, a man in a long white beard was the protagonist who was being, you were being told of his righteousness, his sickness, his piousness. And all of a sudden he created this new genre, which was a good genre of the child being the protagonist, the child struggling, the child having the challenge. It certainly resonated, especially in our 21st century, irrespective if you live in Benebra or you live in Boston. But, Nevertheless, recognizing that, and obviously God will be the ultimate uh, judge. I have no reason, God forbid, I mean, he's at this point any personal vendetta, God forbid, not against his family, certainly his wife, his parents were so high. But I felt the books should still not be in one's home 
if nothing less, because of the trigger effect to the vic any victims of sexual assault. And also, I, I do believe that perhaps between the lines, there are messages which uh, could be negative to the reader. So you're saying that the, you may maybe subtle messages in his work that now that we know what kind of a person he was, that's hidden in there that maybe uh, have some pernicious effect on people reading it? Yeah, I don't know if I'd even been doing hidden. I mean, I mean, if these, like I said, these allegations, I heard an interview with Shmuel Eliyahu. I, I think it's clear. I don't think anybody even doubts this as well. Shmuel Eliyahu, as the expression goes, has no skin in the game. Shmuel Eliyahu is a, I believe, a Sephardic love who lives in Sfat, who is a more associated with the religious Zionist camp. I don't think, you know, he doesn't uh, hobnob with the Nabok uh, rabbinic officials necessarily. Uh, he doesn't live there. He doesn't live any, any close to the, his background, uh, which is known as strongest uh, stronghold of Ashkenazic Jewry, be it Hasidic, be it uh, Litvish, Lithuanian. Uh, he's a Sephardic rub, the son of a Sephardic chief rabbi, lives in Tzvaz, a very more mystical type of a place. He has no skin in this game. I, I have no reason to doubt him. He's not making money on this, that's for sure. He's probably receiving death threats, I imagine. And uh, I have no reason to doubt any of his testimony. He certainly has a, a extremely reputable person, extremely reputable. He's exposed molesters in the past. And he has been proven to be correct. So, given the severity of the allegations, if you read them in the newspaper, I mean, they are horrific. They're talking about a man who not only uh, assaulted uh, uh, girls, he assaulted boys, he assaulted men, I mean, certainly young men, and he assaulted married women, which although technically may be considered not legally a crime because perhaps technically it was consensual, but certainly he used his position and his charisma to manipulate married women into relationships, which, from what I understand, caused some of them to have broke up their families and to, be, to divorce. So given the abhorrent and the perniciousness and the level of, uh, of psychotic behavior that this man uh, unfortunately exhibited for the last quarter of a century, I don't such a, a psychotic dual personality, duplicitous individual. I, I just, I wouldn't trust myself to read the book. I, I don't know what, especially that these books are, have very subtle messages of, of, uh, in them. I don't even know if he could be aware, frankly, from what I understand both, and I, well, this, I think this is very important to point out, Zev, going back to your original point. I, I don't think it's accurate to say that, when I mentioned broad-stroking B'nai Brak, uh, that all of B'nai Brak sort of all of a sudden turned into his supporters. Number one, Rabbi Silman, Rabbi Silman, who was one of the, uh, Rabbi Eliyahu says that he had his full support. Rabbi Silman was totally supportive of Rabbi uh, Eliyahu and what he had to do. 
And I, I also think it's important to know that Yehuda Moshe Silman, who is now the head of Rabbi Karelis's basin, which is considered the premier basin, they are the gold standard in, quote-unquote, the Lithuanian community of the basin, where Karelis was the nephew of the Thazon East, who is uh, the founding father of the Lithuanian camp of, of B'nai Brak, this man is a Gera Chassid. People don't realize he is a, a Chassid of the Gera Rebbe. However, he learned in Lithuanian style what they call Litzvashi Yeshivas. He's an extreme man of humility, certainly always, always avoiding the limelight. And he himself, Rabbi Eliyahu claims, I have no reason to doubt this man, but he himself went to CW in an attempt to personally convince him. And, I, and honestly, I think at that point he was met with threats and intimidations. And he, not so much, not, not, he was in the forefront with Rabbi Eliyahu of this fight to, to stop this man at all costs from his, uh, from his deeds. So, Rabbi Ron, so, Rabbi Ron, yes, I want to break. I want to pick up on these points. And okay. We're speaking with Rabbi Ron Yitzhak Eisman. He is the Rav in Passaic, New Jersey, of Congregation Havis Israel. He's written a fantastic article regarding the Chaim Walder case. Uh, he's written books, the Swarm, and we're glad that he joins us tonight. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One of the most important Jewish institutions in the world today is Talkline with Zeb Brana. He is so smart and he is so innovative and he has so many interesting guests. I don't know what Yiddishkeit, I don't know what New York, I don't know what the world would do without Zev. So Zev, Yashikoch, may you go from strength to strength and keep, keep informing us and educating us and keep fighting for Jewish values. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Our guest is Rabbi Ron Yitzhak Eisenman. He's originally from Brooklyn, New York. He's written the Svarm. He's Rabbi Congregation Abbas Israel in Passaic, New Jersey. His latest book is called Shul with a View. We're looking at the Chaim Walder story. This is the last chapter of the Chaim Walder story. Uh, we're going to get to some of your phone calls right now. Okay, let us first go to, let's go to Stan in Forest Hills. Okay, Stan in Forest Hills, your question for our guest. Go ahead, Stan. Uh, good morning and Happy New Year to everyone first. Uh, uh, I, I have to take exception on one or two things that the gentleman has said. One, Mr. Cosby has been released, and it was released because there's some problem in the case uh, that happened so forth. So, uh that's a separate situation. I don't even know why he brought up Mr. Cosby, Bill Cosby. But about Mein Kampf, uh, as I don't know if you know, but I think uh, it, it's been done. I know the original publishers of Mein Kampf, whoever they were, were bought out by whatever, uh, contribute. You know, I think they sell maybe 10 million copies a year or something across. Well, I read it in college and so forth. It was required reading to, to see what a maniac is like. Anyway, but many of the royalties from Mein Kampf go to Jewish organizations in Germany. Did you know that? So what's your point, Stan? The point is, this guy's dead. 
let his books publish and give the royalties to the victims of his crime. Get the lists and arrange with the publishers when the thing comes to give the royalties to the victims, all of them. And this way, some way, it, it, there could be some uh, uh, renumification to those who were hurt. It'll never. Uh, okay, let me let me let Rabbi Ron Eisman respond to you. Go sure, ahead, Rabbi sure. Eisman. Go ahead. Okay, good. Thank you for the question. Obviously, the Mr. Cosby issue has no reason to address. But the uh, second issue um, about the selling of Mein Kampf, well, obviously, one would first have to consult with the victims. I don't think it's fair. First, stand from first to comment uh, on what the victims would be satisfied with, what the victims would not be satisfied with. I would, since this, Mr. Stan seems to be a student of history, I would remind him that nobody less than Menachem Begin uh, brought down just about coming with an inch of bringing down the Israeli government in his uh, steadfast opposition to taking blood money from Germany and the Anauer government uh, when that was being passed. So I, I don't think it's uh, for Mr. Stan or for anybody else to for us to decide uh, what should be published and what should be considered compensation or what should could be considered proper uh, restitution for those who have been totally uh, injured for life. So I, I would rather leave it to the victims themselves to decide as to people in, in Faisal's. Okay, let's take. Let's go to Carolyn. Go ahead, Carolyn. Your question or comment? Uh, My question is, what does Carolyn? Go ahead. Victim mean? Uh, CW stands for Chaim Walder. CW stands for Chaim oh. Walder. Okay. Well, because they have a, a television station here in New York on Channel Eleven. Yeah, we're not. We're not. We're not talking about Channel Eleven. But anyway, thank you for your. Phone I no, I just didn't understand. Shushan understood. Okay. Anyway, okay. We pray, let's go to Ben Sion yes. in Midwood. Ben Sion very patiently waiting. Go ahead, Ben Sion in Midwood. Yes. Um, your question Your question for our guest. Go ahead. Well, first of all, I think it was uh, disgusting that Milton uh, Yoshua um, Balcony tried shouting you down. And uh, No, we had, we, had, we, had, we had a discussion, but go ahead. Okay. The Rashba tried promulgating, and it did succeed among the Spartan. Unfortunately, the, the Ashkenazim don't know how to deal with it. Uh, he promulgated a clause that when, a, when there are no men to testify, and the only ones who have been molested and who can come forward are, are women and children uh, and young men, that their, that their testimony is acceptable in the Sephardic, the Sephardic uh, basin. Um, I guess it will take a, a long time for the for our community to uh, acclimate to that because when government is under under the gun, uh, they they can do irrational things. For instance, the internment of the Japanese here in America. Eventually, those who who were still around, um, I don't know, it was ten twenty years ago, were given at least token um, uh, money for to make up for that that uh, fiasco. Uh, it'll, so it'll, you just want to get to the point because uh, we're short of time. Yeah, no, what I want to say is, uh, it, it'll, your your guest is right on the mark, and there may be here, of course, also some mental illness. I think he mentioned that probably the uh, the man, um, uh, the alleged molester, was uh, psychotic. Uh, indeed, that's probably true. Uh, that's the, the essence mm -hmm. of my comments. All right, thank you. Did you want to comment, Robert Reisman? Did you want to comment on that? 
No, 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 it's just and I appreciate the call. Thank you. Let me thank you for your phone call. Let's take an email question. Here's an email question from Joseph. According to Halacha, if there was no give us edus in a rabbinical court, accepting what is said is Lushan Hara. So, again, obviously, it's not exactly the venue of the forum to delve into the exact particulars and nuances, but I appreciate Joseph's email. But suffice to say that he's incorrect in uh, taking a very simplistic view in what the uh, usage of the term gviyasedus, meaning the testimony of witnesses, is the only means necessary. And within that absence, it becomes Lashon Hara. Unfortunately, he's misinformed in that way. You should uh, advise him. The Chubas of Rebel Yashiv, Zehadadi Zavrava, points out, quoting before him, almost a thousand years before him, the Chubas of the Rashba, Shoma Ben Adaris, who was the Rav in Barcelona in the uh, late 1200s, early 1300s, who points out very clearly that in the absence of technical aid and uh, remind uh, our friends from Midwood, it's very rare, in fact, outright impossible that a person before they uh, sodomize a nine-year-old boy will call over to adult males over 12 years old and make sure that they are uh, witnessing this act of sodomization in order that perhaps later they can testify. So uh, as El Yashif points again out, quoting the Rashba a thousand years before him, that in that absence the Rabbanim of the community especially in the case of what's called a color de lopatica, which is a allegations which are, are consistent and they are just keep coming in. The lopatica, they don't stop. That there are consistent allegations against this individual that in such a case the basin has the right and the obligation to do what it feels it's right based on their uh, evaluation of the case, well aware of the fact that as children learn in school that there has to be a edus, a testimony in front of the basin, et cetera, et cetera. But don't you need, Rabbi Eisman, the testimony from the, the one that's being, that's being alleged against? Even doesn't he have the right to defend himself? Right, before they make a final determination. No. So the answer is, is no, meaning, first of all, CW had, was asked to come before the basin last Sunday of Revelyahu in Svat, and he declined. Therefore, we would, it would be absurd, immoral, and anti-halatic to assume that just because a person, uh, which in America, of course, a person can be subpoenaed and uh, forced to, but obviously justice can be done in absentia if the defendant uh, refuses to cooperate. You made, a very, you made a very important point because there are people alleging that he didn't have an opportunity for his day in court. If he turned down the opportunity, then he can't blame the bezin. We have a room for one more phone call. We're almost out of time. So let's go to the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Your question for Rabbi Eisman. Go ahead, please. It's not only Rabbi Eisman, but Rabbi Balkan. He said he didn't have his day in court. They had tapes of him. He, he, he was saying things and he did things on tape. They had taped him. When he did, when he did this disgraceful act, so he had there was an appearance of him there by his words and what and his actions, and they had to stop any further opportunities for others. So they were trying to save others, and many people were saved because of this when it came into the open. I'm gonna let Rabbi Eisman respond to you. I think our friend from the Lower East Side, he's got the 
Lower East Side on the mark mentality. He's got a bullseye there exactly on target. This man was a predator for over a quarter of a century. There are countless victims that have come forth giving credible testimony. As mentioned, and there's this ridiculous accusation, which is people have told me that the tapes have been bolted or somehow artificially manufactured is, is absurd. There are tapes of him speaking to these women, telling them to not testify. There's absolutely not a shred, not a shred of doubt that this man committed these acts. These acts. All right, thank, the word, the word, uh, anyway, thank you for your phone. We're out of time, so I, we're out of time, so I appreciate your phone call, but thank you. Anyway, I want to thank Rabbi Ron Yitzhak Eisenman, and we'll take more phone calls later on. Rabbi Ron Yitzhak Eisenman, uh, originally from Brooklyn. He's now Rav of Congregation Abbas Israel in Passaic, New Jersey. He's, uh, he's written some fascinating books. I urge you to get them. His latest one is called The Shul with a View from Artsboro. Uh, we appreciate your being here with us. Look forward to having you back. Continuing success, and I really want to have you. I, I, we really want to have you back again, Rabbi uh, Eisman, uh, because I think you have a fresh voice that you're not afraid to speak out and articulate. And I think we need more. We need more of that in our community. We need more voices such as yourself in the community. So, Rabbi Ron Eisman, thank you for joining us on the radio. Thank you so much. Rabbi. It would be my pleasure. And again, I want to stress again. There's zero personal vendetta against CW. This is only and exclusively to protect, as the caller mentioned, more children, more adults from being abused, which is our primary concern. And I thank you, Zev, for the time. Thank you so much. We look forward to having you back. We, th we look forward to having you back on a future broadcast. Thank you, Rabbi Ron Eisman. Thank you. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Silvery provides emotional support for victims of unwanted touching and sexual abuse. Call the Silvery hotline at 888-613-1613. Again, that's 888-613-1613. All calls are confidential and anonymous, and you don't have to be alone. Silvery hotline is staffed by trained volunteers who provide help, support, information, and referrals, and under the auspices, of the Mount Sinai Beth Israel. Again, the Sophie helpline is 888-613-1613. Thanks for listening. For continuous Jewish programs, hawklinenetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or jewishpodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the talklinenetwork.com. Talkline Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.